Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Now we've been following along with the Apostle Paul, and uh, this is, he's been on his, what we call the second missionary journey. He's got three missionary journeys. And the second one he's going to complete today, and he's going to begin his third missionary journey. But on his second missionary journey, remember, he was on his way to uh, Asia, but he'd been stopped by the Holy Spirit, and there was a detour to go up through Macedonia. Remember the man from Macedonia said, please come and help us. He had that dream, had that vision. So he goes up and he establishes the Macedonian churches, Thessalonica is among them, Philippi is among them. And now he's, he's gone down to Athens, if you recall. Did he get a, re, a great reception in Athens? Did he start a great church in Athens? No. no, he got very, very few people respond to him in Athens. And on top of it, he was alone in Athens. And he goes down to Corinth. And now we're going to see him leaving Corinth to go to Ephesus this morning. We left off last time. And he was dragged before the Roman proconsul Gallia there in uh, Corinth. You recall that. And the Jews were very, very jealous of him, and they were antagonistic of him, even reasoning with him in the synagogue. And they drag him before Gallia, the Roman council. And they say the, the charges he's, he's, he's talking about, he's teaching about an illegal religion, an illegal god. Illegal God. Can you imagine that? Now remember, the Romans recognized Judaism. They were tolerant of Judaism. And they viewed Christianity as being a sect of Judaism, just under Judaism's umbrella of covering, if you would. Now these Jews didn't want anything to do with Paul or this Jesus who was proposed to be the Messiah. And so they are very, very eager to get rid of Paul and get him out of the synagogue there and get him out of Corinth and actually have him thrown in jail because there are more and more and more Jews who were believing. In fact, the leader of the synagogue believed, right? Crispus. And then the second leader of the synagogue, uh, Sosthenes, he would become a believer. We'll see that this morning. So lots is going on. So he's dragged before Gallio. He's, he's, he's in effect on trial. Does Gallio decide for him or against him? He decides for him. So this is Absolutely wonderful because you see God's grace in his provision and his mercy because what happens now is the gospel is going to expand tremendously now because when a governor or proconsul would make a decision, it would set precedent. So Gallio, he's only there for a year. Is that amazing how God brings people together just at the right time for his purposes? So Gallio rules in favor of Paul, in favor of Christianity, in fact. And so now a precedent is set for the rest of the Roman Empire. Every other governor, every other proconsul who would be having to deal with these Christians would have to abide by the, the precedent that Gallio has set. This sets the stage for the next 10 to 12 years for Christianity to literally explode in that part of the world, in, in uh, Achaia, And then over in Asia, every place that Rome ruled, Christianity could go. Until, of course, Nero comes on the stage. And Nero, interestingly, persecutes the Christians because he's married to 
a woman who is an adherent to Judaism. So she's antagonistic, and she incites Nero against the Christians, and then you know what happened from there. So there's a, there's a unique time in history where um, the gospel and Paul's ministry uh, can go forward without any fear of any legal hindrance, and his ministry literally flourishes. And we'll look at that later on. So in verse 18 of our passage, let's read the passage together. <clears throat> Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. And then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with him, that he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. Has anybody ever had the way of God explained to you more adequately? Yes. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had, been, had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Paul's ministry now, he leaves Corinth. He's been in Corinth for probably a good seven, eight, nine months. He leaves Corinth and uh, he heads towards Ephesus. He leaves Corinth, the church in Corinth, it's an emerging church. He leaves it hand, in the hands of the brothers. If you notice in verse 18, that, that simple phrase, who were the brothers? Who were the people that he left the church uh, to? I suspect it was among others, Gaius, Sosthenes, Stephanus, and Crispus, they're all mentioned in the Corinthian letter. And so he leaves Corinth. He wants to go to Jerusalem. His purpose is, and he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, because his purpose is to complete a vow that he had taken. Luke doesn't tell us very much about the vow. He just says he's made this vow, and he's going to have his hair cut, and that's important. Now, it's probably a Nazarite vow. You can read about a Nazarite vow in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 6. It gives you all the details. It's a very involved process, involves a lot of sacrifice. One of the things was that it was, it was a vow of gratitude to God for his help and his provision. And part of that was that you would, you're, you're, if you're a male, you let your hair grow for a, a month, and at the end of the month, there's a 30-day vow typically, and then you would cut your hair. You would take that hair to the temple in Jerusalem, offer it as a burnt offering along with all of the other 
requisite offerings that are identified in Numbers chapter 6 for a Nazarite vow. So he's, he's really, really anxious to get to Jerusalem because when he gets into Ephesus, he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue and they want him to stay. Do you suppose he wanted to stay? Absolutely. He's got a budding and fruitful ministry going on, but he's, he's got to get to Jerusalem. He's, it's, he's, it's imperative that he complete this vow. Have you ever made a vow to God? Have you ever made a vow? How many married people do we have? <laughs> you want to keep your vows, right? Let your yes be yes. All right. So God, God had been gracious to him, provided for him, even though he had been full of grief and, and, and trouble and chased out of this town and that town. And now he's down in Corinth. He's all by himself. He's not had a fruitful ministry up in Athens we read about. But God provides for him, doesn't he? God provides new friends for him, Aquila and Priscilla. They happen to be of the same trade that Paul was. They were uh, leather workers or tent makers, if you will. And so Paul went to work with them. So God provided friends for him. He provided work for him. He's not alone. Provided a place to stay for him. He would stay with Aquila and Priscilla and provided, again, a fruitful ministry, an open door for the gospel there in Corinth. And so God has been faithful to him, and Paul is going to get there to Jerusalem to complete this vow. Now, he takes with him, when he leaves Corinth, he takes with him his two new closest friends, Aquila and Priscilla. And Luke tells us in verse 18, before he sailed... He had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. We're not given any more information than that. You have to kind of read between the lines a little bit and know about the background of why he would make a vow. Now, question, did Paul have to make a vow, do you think? No, no. He wasn't under the law. And according to Jewish law, you had to make a vow. He's not under the law. But it's part of his heritage and a very common way that a Jew would make a vow. And so he does that. They arrive at Ephesus. Paul would leave Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. They apparently settled there for several years. In fact, they started a house church there. We know that from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. The church in the province of Asia sends you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. So here they are. He leaves them, and they start a church there in Ephesus. Now, as was Paul's custom, he would go into the synagogue, and he would reason to the Jew, with the Jews. What do you think he did? What, what does it mean to reason with the Jews? We've read this a number of times. What did he share with them? That Jesus was the Messiah. Is that all he shared, that Jesus is the Messiah? Probably shared the gospel, didn't he? He probably shared the gospel with them. What is the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? Can you tell anybody what the gospel is? I have good news for you. What's that good news? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to bring what? New life. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel. 
So Paul is sharing the gospel. And he is well received. He is well received. In fact, they ask him to stay longer. But he declines because of his intention to go to Jerusalem to finalize his vow. But he promised to return, he said, if it is God's will. If it is God's will. Now, verse 22 tells us that Paul went on to fulfill his, his vow. He greeted the church. Presumably, that's the church in Jerusalem. That's the mother church, if you will. And then he goes down from there back to Antioch, his home church, and that was his home base, and greets them. This would conclude his second missionary journey, a journey of some 1,500 miles, mostly on foot. Is he serious about the gospel? Absolutely. Now, verse 23, we see the beginning of his third missionary journey, where he would pass through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul was about planting churches, strengthening the disciples, following up with them, encouraging them <coughs> amidst all the challenges they would be facing. Now, while Paul is up in, the, in that region of Galatia and Phrygia, Luke takes us back to Ephesus to meet a man by the name of Apollos. How many have heard of Apollos? Okay. Now, we're told a number of things about Apollos. We're told, first of all, that he was Jewish, and he's from Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt. It was one of the major philosophical centers in the ancient Near East at this particular point in time. You had Rome as a commercial center. You had Ephesus as a major center in Asia, and then you had uh, Alexandria in Egypt. We learned that he was a learned man. He was eloquent. He had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, literally, the, the translation would be, he was mighty in the scriptures. The word comes from a root word, dunamis, from which we also get the word dynamite. So he was mighty in the scriptures. So he was, he was, this guy was awesome. By the scriptures is meant simply the Old Testament, because we didn't have, at that juncture, we don't have the New Testament recorded for us. And that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase. What do you think is the way of the Lord? How would you define the way of the Lord? Well, let me show you some verses. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. Now, this is God talking to Abraham. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him. There's some instruction for fathers, right? I will direct his children and his household after him to keep what? The way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. The way of the Lord. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 22. Same idea. So this is God talking to Israel about using the Philistines to discipline and to test the Israelites because they're so rebellious. He says, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. There's one last passage. It's Psalms 25, verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his, his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. So the way of the Lord was simply an Old Testament expression 
that describe God's path of spiritual and moral standards for his people. This is the way, walk in it. Have you ever heard that? This is the way, walk in it. Now, Paulus also spoke with great fervor. He was on fire when he talked about God, when he talked about God's way. And he taught about Jesus accurately. But Luke says he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos is the kind of man, I would suggest to you, whom we might call a Christian, but not quite. A Christian, but not quite. He had a great many requirements, if you will. He didn't just have a knowledge, but he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. It's obvious that you cannot be a Christian without having a good knowledge of the scriptures. You have to know what you believe. He had been instructed in the teachings of Jesus. Certainly there's no Christianity without that. He had a fervent desire to pass on all that he knew to others. He was a missionary, if you will. In addition, he had this tremendous background in education. He was from Alexandria. What did he have not? Did he have everything he needed to be a Christian? What do you think? No, no. Aquila and Priscilla sensed, as they listened to him teach and preach, they had a sense that something was missing. What do you think it was that was missing? The only clue that Luke gives us is in verse 25. He knew only the baptism of John. You see, he had missed what the way of God really is. What is the way of God really? Is it only teaching that Jesus is the Messiah? Or is there more than that? There's more than that, absolutely. Now let me, let me remind you that the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance, repentance only. Now think about what does that mean? It was a baptism into simply moral improvement. There's lots and lots of people today into moral improvement, aren't there? But there's more than that. The baptism of John initiated people into a great reform movement, but it was not the baptism of Jesus. If you recall from the second chapter of the book of Acts, when Peter preaches his very first sermon, and people are, Luke says the people, are, they're, they're cut to the, to the quick, cut to the heart, they're convicted, and they cry out, and they say, Peter, what must we do to be saved? What does he tell them? Peter replied, what? Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of who? Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to you that is this three-step program. If you're on a 12-step program, there's a better one. It's a three-step program. What does it start with? Repentance. Repentance. I hear people all the time saying, maybe you said this, oh, I'm struggling with it. I'm struggling with something. I got this stuff in my I'm struggling. You're not struggling. You just don't want to give it up. You haven't repented yet. You haven't made a decision. No more. 
If that's you and you're, you're going through some stuff and you, you're struggling, you know how to get out of this, you go home today and you get on your knees and say, I repent of this, and you name it. You say, God, I'm no more. I'm turning away from it. And be baptized into the name of Jesus. It's the baptism of Jesus. And when you repent and you get baptized in Jesus' name, you receive the gift of the, whoo, man, whole new life. Whole new life. You see, the baptism of Jesus is the baptism into death and resurrection. This is the core of the gospel. This is the core of Christianity. It's a baptism into death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us about this. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into what? His death. What does that mean? It means here you are. This is November 4th, 2018, right? So let's say you receive the Lord, you put your faith in Jesus today. What happens in that spiritual realm? You're transported back 2,000 years ago. You're united with Christ in his death. When he died, you died with him. When he was buried, you were buried with him into death. When he was raised to new life, you were raised with him to brand new life. And you're transported back to the future. A brand new creature. Anybody who's in Christ is a what? New creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Are you with me? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what kind of life? New life. This is not just, Christianity is not just a, a moral improvement program. Christianity isn't just another Another way to go that we feel better about ourselves. No, Christianity is a point where in which we realize and recognize that we are sinners. We humble ourselves before God. We confess that sin. We repent of it, and we die with Christ. It's not about self-esteem. It's not about self-worth. It's not about all the self stuff. The self must die. The self must die. You see, the baptism of Jesus is a dying to self. In other words, it's not about me anymore. It's about who? Do you remember what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he talked about this life he lives. He lives... By faith in Jesus. It's no longer I who live. It is who? Christ who lives in me. A Christian. A Christian is an absolutely unique, different person than he or she was before they became a Christian. It's a miracle transformation that happens in our lives. The baptism of Jesus is simply the recognition of that of your own self you can do nothing and that you are willing to stand in the presence of God as a sinner claiming nothing, only counting on his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. You come with empty hands of faith. I got nothing to offer you except my sin 
my selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, and I humble myself before you, and I cry out, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's how you call upon him. You recognize you, it's not about you anymore. And you bow before him. The baptism of Jesus changes the center of things from a self-directed effort to God-given grace. Every single day, we are dependent on the grace of God. Would you agree with me to that? Every single, we don't take it for granted. Every day, we thank him. God, thank you for your grace to me today. You wake up in the morning, you go, God, thank you, thank you. You go to bed at night, you say, God, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your grace to me. Thank you for your mercy to me. Thank you that you, your will is being worked out in my life. Thank you that you have caused me to be born again. You see, it's the difference between a person who tries desperately to be good and one who admits that he or she cannot be good. Cannot be good. Not in the absolute sense. The only thing we can admit is that we are sinners. Would you agree? People don't like to admit that. They don't want to hear that. Not in our age today. You're a sinner. Mm, I don't like that. I don't believe in sin. I don't care. Whether you believe it or not, the truth is you're still a sinner. And that has to be dealt with. And once that admission is made, then that person is raised into a new kind of life in which is experienced a freedom and power never before known. What a difference. Freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom. No more struggle. No more real struggle. I've set my course. I know where I'm going. I know who I am and whose I am. I belong to him. There's no more struggle. If stuff comes up, I say, no, no way, no way, no way. And the freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit living in me makes all the difference. Free. Doesn't that sound glorious? We have no excuse, do we, as Christians? No excuse. I read someplace where it said, the Bible says, I can do most things. I can do what? Everything. I can do all things through Christ Jesus, who gives me the strength. I have no excuses. I can't, well, I just can't help my, yes, you can. You just don't want to. You don't want to give up your sin. It's become such a habit in your life. But you can. You can, if you will. You can. So it became, it became clear to Aquila and Priscilla then they heard Apollos teaching that they needed to fill in some blanks for him. They explained to him, verse 26, they explained to him the way of God more adequately. You see, Apollos had missed the gospel. He was arguing with the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had missed the gospel. He was a Christian, but not quite It's like a man who marries a wife. 
He does all the good things a good husband ought to do. He provides a home for his wife. He protects her, proud of her, encourages her, gives her everything she might desire. But he doesn't surrender himself. He doesn't give himself to her. That's the key difference. Most of us guys think, well, I can just buy you this. I can give you that. I can provide this. But we never give them. The most important thing that they desire and want is ourselves. Every so often someone comes to me and says, Pastor, do you do marriage counseling? I said, oh, yes. Should I make an appointment? No, I'll do it right now. It doesn't take very long to do marriage counseling. If it's a man, I tell him, do what the Bible says. Are you a Christian? Yes. Do you have God's spirit living in you? Yes. Are all things possible for you? Yes. Then do what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. <laughs> Obey God. Do it. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself. He gave himself. Did he hold back anything? No. What else? What else is the husband supposed to do? Live with his wife in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. What? Who can understand a woman? That's the cry of men down through history. Who can understand a woman? Well, God says we can, husbands, if we would. And how do you understand a woman? You listen. Now I can hear some guys rolling their eyes. <laughs> so if a woman comes to me and says, Pastor, we need marriage counseling, would you counsel us? Say, yes. Should I call the office and make an appointment? No. I'll do it right now. God bless you. What do you suppose I tell her? Submit to your husband as unto the, in most things, everything. <laughs> and show him proper respect. Honor your husband. Wow. These things are impossibly humans, humanly speaking. But with God, all things are possible. If we're not doing these things at the very basic level, then we have cause to wonder if, in fact, we're Christians, really. If it's still, we're still selfish and prideful and holding back. Am I making sense? Is that, is that a fair statement? Some of you agree with me. Churches today are filled with people who are Christians, but not quite. They're going through the motions. They know all the right things to do. They know all the right things to say. They know the words to the songs. They put a few bucks in the bucket. But they haven't died. They haven't surrendered themselves to Jesus. They may have a high sense of moral responsibility. They assume their part in the life of the community. 
but they have missed what the way of God really means. They have the baptism of John, but not the baptism of Jesus. We baptized a man last night, Gordon Leverett. Some of you may know Gordon, Gordon and Debbie. He'd been coming to this church for six years. Every week, he would come and sit way in the back there. Furman, we're just about where you're sitting. And Gordon would just sit there and listen. I'd greet him every Sunday. He'd come, I mean, every, every, every Saturday night, come to church. Last night, he stepped forward to be baptized. When we interviewed him, he said, I've been coming here for six years. I just would come and listen and come and listen and come and listen. And then I realized I needed to turn my life over to Jesus. It's a miracle. So six months ago, he committed his life to Jesus. You, I promise you, if you'd have heard that testimony last night, you'd have just, that was the greatest testimony, I promise you, that we've ever heard in the history of this church. It was so powerful. It was the very thing I'm talking about to you this morning. He realized he was a sinner and he gave himself wholeheartedly to Jesus. We cannot miss what the way of God really, really means. It means I give myself wholly to him every day, every day. We keep in the forefront of our thinking the fact that he has been merciful to us. God, you are merciful, God. You are gracious. You are compassionate. You love us. How could you not want to give yourself to that kind of person? This is no mere academic distinction. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between a person who is frantically trying to hold on to a sinking ship and one who, knowing the seriousness of his or her plight, reaches out for that life preserver that has been thrown down from above. Where are you stuck in your life, if you are? Where are you holding back? Where are you struggling? To obey Jesus' commands, to try to live out and fulfill the Sermon on the Mount is a moral goal to which we all aspire. Isn't that true? But if a person has nothing more than a moral goal to strive for, that person has missed the meaning of Christianity. It's not just being moral. It's much more than that. It's not just maintaining or attaining to some moral standard. Because if that's all it is, then that person, it may be said of him or her, that they are a Christian, but not quite. The church was not, is not, and never can be an environment simply for the improvement of morals. It was at the start is now and always must remain a resurrection center. Have you been raised from the dead? Have you been raised from the dead with Jesus? A resurrection center in which men and women see the reality of God, the, rea the reality of God. They surrender the direction of their lives. They die to their own selfish wills and raised into a brand new different life of freedom and power that they heretofore have never, ever known. 
power. Power to live this Christian life. You need God's power to live this Christian life, don't we? A life in which all the old problems don't go away. They're all still there. All the old problems are still there. But there's a new power to deal with them. And underneath the disquiet of the world, there is this marvelous peace of God which transcends all understanding. You are not rattled at all. That may be a new concept to some, but nothing, nothing upsets you because you know that God is on the throne. He's working his will out. You can trust him. His will is good and pleasing and perfect. In our humanness, yes, we can get scared. But once we grab a hold of ourselves, we remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are. You're home free. You're home free. Bow your heads with me. I just want to ask you a couple questions. Have you died with Christ? Have you been buried with him? And have you been raised to new life with him? Do you know the power and the freedom of Jesus in your life? Do you know the peace of God which transcends all understanding? Are you born again? Are you a new creation with the old things that passed away? Has God spoken to you this morning in any significant way? Are you a Christian but not quite? Or are you all in with him? If not, I want to just give you an opportunity while people's heads are bowed. If you realize that maybe you need to take a step forward and you need Jesus in your life, you've never really surrendered yourself to him. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to do that. And I'd like to lead you in a short prayer. But before we do that, I want to know if there's anybody that wants to pray that way. If that's you then just lift your hand right now and signal me. I see this hand. I see that hand over there. I see this hand right here. Way in the back, okay. I see that hand way back there, those two hands. Anybody else? Just raise your hand right now. On the aisle, I see your hand there. God bless you. Right down in the center. Okay, I see your hand over here on the side. Right down here in the front. Okay, good. Anybody else? If you raise your hand, pray this prayer with me. We're just very simple. God, your spirit has convicted my heart this morning. You've spoken to me in a very powerful way. And I realize that I need to surrender my life wholly and totally to you. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I have no excuses. I come before you with empty hands, nothing Nothing to accredit myself to you. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I ask you to save me. Cause me to be born again this morning. Jesus, I put my faith in you. I surrender my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I pray and I give you thanks. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to turn to somebody and tell somebody, I just prayed to receive Jesus in my life so that I can tell you today I am a Christian. Do that right now. 
Tell somebody, Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, I won't confess you before the Father. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Tell somebody right now that you prayed that prayer. Okay? Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, shall we? And for the rest of us, let's just simply bow our heads and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We love you this morning. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done more fully in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.